Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brennan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today attorney Tony Grandy from the law firm of Clawson Miller, PC, with U.S. offices in Chicago, California, New Jersey, and New York, and several worldwide affiliate offices throughout Europe and Asia. Tony Grandy is a partner who resides in both the firm's New Jersey and New York offices, where his litigation and trial practice includes matters involving insurance, construction law, and professional liability. Mr. Grandy is a former New York City prosecutor and has practiced law for over 25 years. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tony. Thank you. Today's topic is construction law litigation in New York labor law, and Brendan Noonan is going to lead off with our first question. Tony, what is New York Labor Law 240 sub 1? Uh, Labor Law 240 sub 1 is sometimes known or referred to as the scaffolding law of New York. It is a statute which dates back to around 1921, which ostensibly provides absolute or strict liability against owners, general contractors, and their agents for job site accidents or injuries, resulting typically from a fall from a height or an injury sustained by falling material or other objects. The critical difference between Labor Law 240 sub 1 and other sections of the Labor Law, Labor Law 200 and 241 sub 6, which makes 240 sub 1 cases the bane of our existence for defense attorneys and insurance adjusters, is that this law also prohibits or bars comparative negligence as an affirmative defense, which in many construction site accidents or scenarios can otherwise be a very significant defense. What this means in layman's terms is that no matter how culpable or unreasonable the worker's conduct may have been in causing or at least contributing to his or her own accident, the plaintiff's affirmative negligence by law cannot be used by a jury to apportion liabilities between the worker and the other parties to the suit, with one limited exception known as the sole proximate cause defense. Tony, why are these cases so volatile and important for insurance adjusters, carriers, and their insureds? Settlements and verdicts for Labor Law 240 sub 1 cases in New York are simply through the roof. And depending upon the venue, particularly in plaintiff-friendly venues like the Bronx or Brooklyn, the sky can be the limit in terms of damages. Blockbuster or runaway verdicts in the 7 and even 8-figure range are not uncommon for these types of cases, even for injuries which at first blush may appear or seem to be minor or insignificant. I would dare say that if we did a straw poll of the highest verdicts each year in New York for the last 10 years, I could virtually guarantee that construction or labor law cases would probably account for between 50 and 65 percent of the cases on that list each and every year, and it's probably on the incline. Suffice it to say, as I warn my clients and my newer or younger colleagues who may handle New York labor law cases, never underestimate the seriousness or the exposure of a labor law 241 case. They have an uncanny ability to suddenly become a bet-the-farm case for the client and or a barn burner or career ender for the lawyers, simply meaning it is wise and prudent when handling New York labor law cases to always do your due diligence, investigation, surveillance, and to cross your T's and dot your I's on these cases since they can become very volatile very quickly. Tony, what should an adjuster or a defense attorney do to properly and effectively evaluate these types of cases? Never take the injuries for granted, and always, repeat, always put the excess carriers on notice, or at least once it appears there is a reasonable chance that the damages could expose the primary limits. It is not uncommon for a labor law case to 
come in with one injury, say an arthroscopic surgery of the knee. But several years later, the damages have evolved into other areas of the anatomy, like neck and back, including the famous additional surgery or knee replacement may be possible in the future. The fatal mistake that adjusters and attorneys sometimes make with these cases is not appreciating that a knee is not always just a knee. Thus, a wrist injury, let's say, to one person may not be significant depending upon their vocation, like an office worker, whereas an identical injury to an iron worker, an electrician, or a carpenter can be career-ending. And when you calculate the economic damages to a union iron worker, including salary, overtime, annuity, health, and other employee benefits, in New York City at least, can average well over six figures a year. And therefore, it's not long before the plaintiff counsel retains an economist or a voc rehabilitation expert to project future lost earnings into the millions, especially if the worker is in the beginning or the middle of his or her career. Since the projected work-life expectancy, say, of someone in their early 30s, could be 30 or more years. Likewise, I also strongly recommend always having on your checklist the following question. Has or should the excess carrier be notified? In this regard, I would always err on the side of caution and always recommend notifying the excess carrier, even if there is only a hint that the damages, pain and suffering, plus past and future wages, could potentially exceed the primary policy limits. My motto is better to be safe than sorry. Trust me, many an adjuster and a defense attorney have learned the hard way that it's better to have notified the excess carrier not needed them than not to have notified the excess carrier and needed their policy limits later. Tony, how can owners and contractors protect themselves or better manage these risks? I can answer that in six simple words. Contracts, 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 and insurance, insurance, insurance. An early investigation, including a statement from the job foreman, about the mechanism and the circumstances of the accident can and should be undertaken immediately or at least contemporaneous with the accident, even before assigning the case to counsel. Likewise, the best defense, as they say, is a good offense. And wisdom and hard experience with these cases teaches us that the best way for an owner or a general contractor to allocate the risk and protect themselves in these cases is with bulletproof contracts and insurance provisions that obligate the subcontractor to not only hold the owner or the general contractor harmless, but also requires them to defend the owner and the general contractor and to procure insurance naming the owner or general contractor as an additional insured on the subcontractor's insurance policy. So if the owner or the GC is sued, it's not on their policy, but rather on the subcontractor's dime. Toward that end, another word of caution best practice dictates to not simply accept certificates of insurance as proof that you were named as an additional insured, since at least in New York, legally, certificates of insurance are not evidence or proof of additional insured status. My recommendation or suggestion is to require the subcontractors to also provide your insureds with not only a certificate of insurance, but also a copy of their actual insurance policy clearly naming your insured as a named insured or additional insured on their policy. You'll thank me when the subcontractor's carriers claim later that you may have a certificate of insurance purporting to name your insured as an additional insured. However, as you can plainly see from the actual policy, you were never actually added to the policy, i.e., the subcontractor did not pay the additional premium necessary to do so. 
Please explain the significance of tenders in construction law and New York labor law litigation. I, this is something I cannot say enough about tenders and how important and critical they are in terms of delegating or managing risk in this area of litigation. This may sound like insurance or litigation 101. However, I cannot stress the importance of tenders. It is simply imperative when you first get a labor law case to evaluate, assess, and investigate whether you're insured can tender to another party for defense and indemnification. A word of warning. To do so effectively, it is critical that you set out early to obtain copies of all pertinent or salient contracts, insurance policies, certificates of insurance, or other evidence of additional insured status on behalf of your insured, so that you or your counsel can immediately tender the defense and indemnity of the case to other parties and or their brokers or carriers as quickly and as soon as humanly possible. On some level, this protects not only your insured, but also your insured's carriers, so that the cost and the expense of this litigation is not borne by the insured's carrier, but rather the subcontractor or their carrier. And most importantly, it protects the insured in the event there is a verdict beyond the subcontractor's primary policy limits. It is also critical to tender early since carriers will sometimes deny an otherwise meritorious tender on the sole grounds of late notice. Suffice to say, explaining to your insured or your insured's insurance carrier that the sole reason your tender was rejected or declined was not on the merits, but rather because it was late, is a conversation you don't want to have. Tony, how are the courts handling this? Well, despite everything I've said so far, there is some good news for defendants on the horizon. Courts in New York are increasingly recognizing what is known as the, quote, sole proximate cause defense. What this means in layman's terms is that notwithstanding the rule that comparative negligence is ordinarily not an affirmative defense, no matter how egregious the conduct on the part of the worker, if you can prove that the plaintiff's negligence was the sole proximate cause of the accident or injury, evidence of plaintiff's negligence under those circumstances is still admissible and could help achieve a defense verdict or better still a home run. Dismissal on a motion for summary judgment before a trial is even necessary. The seminal cases from the Court of Appeals in New York are Blake and Narducci, to name a few. Meantime, there is also talk or lobbying underway in Albany for the legislature to finally amend the statute to permit comparative negligence as an affirmative defense under 240-1. However, this has been broached before, and the plaintiff's bar in New York has an immensely powerful lobby in Albany. So I would not hold my breath for this to happen anytime soon, and I am accordingly skeptical that there will be any dramatic changes on this front anytime soon if the plaintiff's bar has anything to say about it. Uh, how has Hurricane Sandy affected labor law 240-1 cases in New York? Sandy was by far the largest hurricane in 2012, not just for New York and New Jersey, but many neighboring states as well. Surprisingly, though, with all the property damage and loss of life that was wreaked by the storm, while there is clearly a significant amount of new construction arising from the property damage from the storm, I'm not so sure that we've seen a spike yet in the labor law types of claims or litigation, albeit it may only be a matter of time, and only time may tell. Naturally, we have seen a lot of property damage claims and litigation arising from Hurricane Sandy, but not the BI or personal injury cases per se, although we certainly do expect to eventually have an increase in these two from the storm. However, statistically or anecdotally, if you have, let's say, just for the sake of argument, two accidents for, say, every 100 jobs, 
statistically, if there's a dramatic increase in the construction due to the property damage, you would anticipate that there would likewise be an increase in the number of accidents or BI claims as well. My own view is that the tail for reporting BI cases can be longer than reporting for property damages, but I am confident that when we look back over, say, a couple of years, we will definitely see a correlation between Hurricane Sandy and the incidences of construction litigation and or New York State labor law claims as well, especially in the affected areas like Jersey Shore and Zone A in New York, which you may remember had to be evacuated during the storm. Tony, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. That was Tony Grandy from the law firm of Clawson Miller PC with offices in Chicago, California, New Jersey, and New York, and with several affiliate offices in Europe and Asia. Special thanks to Brendan Noonan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. BEST's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in BEST's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance Insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about BEST's directory of recommended insurance attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 